1: have changed good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio iaq radio for friday july 24th 2009 this week episode 134 comes to you from studio b in beautiful Coriopolis pennsylvania my name is joe hughes or radio joe and here with me in the studio is the z-man cliff Slotnick.
0: hey joe good to have you back here good to be
1: back and we've also got environmental annie with us this week Hey, Joe. Hello, Annie. And at the controls, as always, is the wingman, Chris Boisell. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, will be joining us at halftime and for the roundup. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Ken Larson, certified restorer and water loss specialist, going to talk a little bit about drying today. We've got the IE Connections, What's News with Glenn Fellman. Come back with the second half with Ken, and then we'll go to the roundup, as always. We've been updating and adding a blog to that IAQ Radio's website, the new IAQ Radio website at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we've got to thank those sponsors.
0: We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ
1: industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at IEConnections.com.
0: DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions. Visit them at DRI EAZ.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement
1: contractors shop at JONDON.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: All right, to contact the show, you just call that 724-444-7444 number. Our show ID is 1547, and you will join the show. You can also hook up with us through the iaqradio.com website, just follow the link that says go to the show, and of course you can always download shows in, in the archive from uh, iaqradio.com or from iTunes. You can also get those IICRC, Continuing Education Credits, and IAQ Council Renewal Credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. Still waiting to hear back from the ABIH. I expect that one any week now. We'll let you know as soon as we have those. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com you can also ask for requests, suggestions, etc., by emailing me or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Those email addresses are also on the home page of the website. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe.
0: Win a cool prize by outcompeting IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is very simple. Just email it to Cliff Zlotnik at unsmoke com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, July twenty-fourth, two thousand and nine. It's a psychrometric question. The Antoine equation is a vapor pressure equation and describes the relation of the saturated vapor pressure and the temperature for pure components. Name the relation from which the Antoine equation is derived. I think that's an advanced one. What do you think, I'll Jeff? say, I'll say, All right. okay. hey, By
1: the way, I wanted to let listeners know we um, redid the Bud Offerman show. If you tried to download that and had trouble... The first eight minutes or so, we had a little uh, glitch with talk shoe, but that's been fixed. It's been re-downloaded, so check it out in the archives. Bud did a great job for us.
0: Yeah, Cliff, didn't... you going to introduce this week's guest? It's my great pleasure, Joe. Ken Larson, certified restorer and water loss specialist, started in the restoration business in 1978 and founded a successful restoration company that was sold in 1999. Since then, he's worked in restoration consulting, large loss drying coordination, and training as an IICRC-approved instructor in the water restoration technician and applied structural drying categories. Ken currently works as a business development director for Disaster Cleanup International, an international franchisor of disaster restoration and repair services. Ken currently resides in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Got some cool intro music for him today.
2: We ended up at the Grand Hotel, it was empty, cold and bare, but with a Rolling Stones truck just outside, we made our music there, with a few red lights, a few orbits, we made a place to sweat, and no matter what we get out of this, I know we'll never forget.
0: All right. Ken, how'd you like that music? A little bit of smoke on that water,
2: huh? Yeah, it's a pretty
0: good rendition of a Deep Purple song. It's pretty interesting. Well, we can hear Pat Boone sing it a little bit easier, so that was good. (laughs) It's good stuff. Well, tell us when and where you entered the disaster restoration business. Whereabouts was it?
3: Well, it's interesting. Uh, You know, you you, uh, said that in the introduction. I started in 1978, and I actually... uh, Uh, was working with my father uh, in Calgary Alberta and uh, you know he started in the carpet cleaning business and it was a natural transition to develop into uh, restoration work and uh, I was working with my father uh, at that time and that was the beginning of my career. Hmm.
0: Did you take any early uh, training courses in in water restoration?
3: Actually I did and and it's kind of funny when you think about it today Um, You know, the Alberta Rug Cleaners Association was uh, uh, the one that uh, was dominant in my area in 1982, and uh, at that time, they had a course, a two-day course um, that you could uh, attend, and uh, you would be given your master cleaner certificate after two days of listening to a tape-recorded presentation. Mm -hmm. So you literally sat there and listened to a cassette deck, doing it, you know, saying what it says, and... Uh, challenge the exam, and you'd get your master cleaner designation.
0: Wow, um, what sort of equipment did you use in when you first started in the business?
3: Well, um, back in those days, it wasn't uncommon to uh, simply use a um, a furnace fan that had been equipped with a a snout, if you will, on it, and uh, those were you know the standard of the day uh, and uh, Simply, we just would have a whole bunch of these air movers and some residential-style dehumidifiers, uh, conventional refrigerant dehumidifiers, and we would uh, install those on a job, and it would do the the, the trick, so to speak, according to the the standards of the day, of course. Uh,
0: Well, let me me ask you a question, Ken. You know, you you were doing this work in 1978. You were going into these water-damaged buildings, and you were using these, uh, let's say, primitive methods Mm-hmm. Uh, are those houses uh, still standing today that you worked on in 1978? Oh sure, they're uh, still there. Uh, did Did you ever get sued for negligence or you know defective workmanship based on what you did in
3: 1978? No, uh, not no, not at least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. All right. Well, I think Joe's got a question for you. Yeah.
3: Can I?
1: You know, I've, I've been uh, kind of watching some of the give and take in the uh, articles that uh, we're going to discuss a little bit later today, but I, I wanted to first ask, when did you start to kind of uh, question conventional wisdom and start to think a little bit outside of the box?
3: Yeah. Well, you, you know, we were using some equipment that, you know, by today's standards is clearly not substandard, I guess you could say. Um But there were occasions when the theories that we were being taught or that I was uh, being taught at the time, uh, they would simply fail. They wouldn't produce the results that I expected. And as a result, um, uh, you know, I would take a step back and look at the experience and the history of the job and go, what went wrong? Why didn't this um, dry the way I expected it to? And so at that time, I, you know, I had to step back and do more research. And I guess that really started to happen about 20 years ago.
0: Is there a particular experience that you can, you know, remember that, you know, changed the way that you were thinking where the results didn't kind of match with the theory?
3: Actually, yeah. And in fact, these are, um, I still have these same conversations with other restorers today. You know, um, when I am teaching these, uh, classes, um, where uh, the certification classes that I'm currently involved in, uh, I will frequently ask the students, tell me about a challenging job that you've recently had. And they're repeating the same experience that I had 20 years ago. They're having challenges drying dense materials like lap and plaster or a concrete slab or a wood floor that just didn't dry the way they expected it to. And um, it was these types of events that, that caused me to go, I need to understand more about the science of making water change state from a liquid to a gas. And that's where I I hit the science books. And there's where I I started to see some of these um, understandings that we're currently teaching in our certification courses that I think in some ways conflict with what we're learning in these certification programs.
1: Ken, let me ask a question. I, I do some uh, mold remediation courses, and we touch on the S-500 water damage restoration standard. And, you know, I, I it's very basic. I, I essentially talk about, you know, the fact that first things first, you've got to get as much liquid water out of the building as you can. And then you've got to try to promote evaporation, and you've got to get some kind of— dehumidification going because once you promote that evaporation you're going to have more moisture in the air you've got to pull it out of the air somehow is this the way you learned it early on and is this still applicable today
3: um sure um it's definitely important to get the, as much of the water out in a liquid state before you begin your drying process uh, i think logic speaks to that um so i'm i don't have any problem with that theory uh, my challenges are on the understanding of um, moisture movement to materials and even some of our explanations, our industry's current explanations on thermodynamics and some of the definitions that we're currently using and the way they're being used.
1: Can you go into a little more detail on that and and with respect to the thermodynamics question in particular, I guess?
3: Yeah, well, okay. Here's what my thoughts are on this. As we all uh, know, and most of us will agree on, is that the forces that are moving or changing, I should say, within an environment are energy forms. Um, There is one dominant understanding that's out there right now that I feel confuses a lot of students, and that is the theory that wet goes to dry. Now, I've had many discussions on this, and lots of people think that it's just semantics. But my concern is that wet and dry are not energy forms. They um, are, you know, states. It's a, you know, a, ma- a material might have a wet state or a dry state. Now, what is the force that moves moisture from uh, one environment to another or from a wet material to the environment? Uh, my research has shown that that's uh, based on pressures. It's the vapor pressures. And uh, the pressure is a form of stored energy. Uh, Hot and cold are a form of stored energy. Um, One respected consultant in our industry has described that moisture will move from more to less. That's not saying wet to dry, but it's moving more to less. And I believe that the more to less part is about pressures. It's not about wet and dry. And um, uh, I just feel that uh, those that have um, embraced the wet to dry theory produce these uh, uh, strategies that will frequently fl- fail, and that's just my little soapbox.
1: The, the wet-to-dry strategies, can you give us an example on that?
3: Sure. Um, how about this one? I've got a wet piece of wood or a wet piece of concrete or a wet piece of lath and plaster, mm-hmm. and I surround it with a dry environment. Now, I feel that lots of uh, students will, uh, when I ask them to define a dry environment, they will give me a grain count. And they will say something like uh, 30 grains per pound or something like that. Uh, And then they will try and argue that, see, my environment is 30 grains per pound. Therefore, the wet material will release the moisture to the 30 grain per pound air. The problem with that scenario is they haven't done enough research on the material itself. What if that material was very cold due to you know, either a cold crawl space or a cold environment outside, if that material remains cold, it may not be releasing its moisture to the dry environment because the vapor pressure within it remains, um, minimal. And so, uh, you know, there's a a classic example of a failed drying strategy. Uh, it's not wet goes to dry. It's high pressure goes to low pressure. And, uh, I just think that's an important element to build uh, the, the restorer's understanding of how materials dry.
1: And you mentioned temperature. How does What role does temperature play?
3: Well, temperature is an energy. Well, it's a measure of energy. So if you have uh, high heat in a material... The molecules will move faster, therefore there's more energy in there, and they're going to want to break their bonds with their uh, other water molecules that are in the wet material, and it will seek to um, leave that wet material due to the pressures that are built up within it when it becomes warm. Uh, It's an energy form.
1: Okay, so what are your thoughts on the heat? processes where you you heat up the room, does that not necessarily help with this uh, transfer? Or is it dependent on other variables?
3: Well, no, I'm not um, for or against heat drying strategies or dehumidification strategies. Uh, I I think that when you um, are employing a strategy to use heat in the drying chamber, that the heat is has the, the sole purpose and intention of heating the water molecule that you're trying to make change state from a liquid to a gas. Okay. I think that that's the whole intention. And it's without that as a, uh, an objective and a measured objective, one that you're intentionally going into the job site and you're saying, all right, I've got my heat in my environment. How are my materials doing? And you take some temperature readings of those materials. That's the only way you can verify that your strategy is in fact working as you intended.
1: Okay, I may have jumped ahead a little bit. Let's let Annie uh, come back to another question. That's
4: fine. Yeah, what components of the structural drying process and methodology did you consider deficient, and how did you recommend improving these?
3: Oh, wow. i got to tell you, that's a huge topic. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's not just one element that I can say requires attention. Um, I believe the issues that we see in the restorative drying industry today uh, are partly the result of what I've described in the, the article, uh, entitled restorative drying quackery. Uh, I wrote another article called EMC, which is equilibrium moisture content, the misunderstood metric. Uh, that also addressed some of the issues that we uh, are seeing in our industry. And I also wrote uh, a three article series on, um, uh, in clean facts, uh, on, uh, voodoo science. And, um, what I call voodoo science. It's basically a, a misunderstanding or a misuse of some of the definitions, uh, according to my research, and I invited the leaders to consider uh, what that may mean for their current drawing strategies. Um, that, you know, I feel that change for our industry will uh, come about as a result of uh, public awareness of the issues.
1: What type of feedback have you gotten from these articles, Ken?
3: Oh, man, (laughs) it's been right across the board, Uh, Joe. I've had everything from shouts of uh, praise and, you know, you the man, you know, you keep going with it, um, all the way down to, uh, oh, serious confusion, you know, just people scratching their heads going, what do I do with this? What does this mean? And in some cases, I've even had some people that uh, were flat out insulted. Um, And that was not my intention to insult anyone, my intention is to. Encourage people to think.
1: What what do you think is responsible for some of these, um, well, you call it quackery, so driving the quackery, let's say? Uh, so what do I think is the result well, what of What do you it? think is responsible for this? Why why do you think there are so many misconceptions uh, being, or I guess inappropriate ways of describing things occurring? Um,
3: so what's the result of that the result is confusion the result you know we have these students that um will uh, will learn a definition of a phrase for instance i'll just say um okay relative humidity what's the definition of relative humidity that seems to be floating out there and uh, a lot of people will believe that that is the amount of moisture that air can hold um uh in relationship to the total amount of moisture that that air could hold at that temperature. And that is kind of just a, a rough description of what the industry currently embraces as the definition for relative humidity. You know, the consequence of of accepting that definition is that people will have the uh, belief that air holds water. And the problem with that is that it leads to incorrect conclusions or, or um Conclusions that will lead to a a poor drying strategy. Air holds water, air holds water. Well, the problem with that is, you know, here we, we, if we're going to try and learn about freeze drying technology, vacuum freeze drying, you know, how can materials release moisture in a vacuum freeze drying chamber when the vacuums are so great that there's darn near the absence of air? Now, how does evaporation occur when there is no air? If air holds water, but, you know these are—it's a building block on understanding. Uh, you know how uh, materials and air um, play a role in the restorer's drying strategy. Uh, I just feel as if uh, you know these courses that we are currently attending—they really need to have uh, responsible building blocks for the restorer to develop their understanding of drying. Uh, on future advanced topics.
1: So, so how would you define relative humidity? You gave us the kind of the incorrect way, or, uh, well, I don't know if it's imperfect way, let's say.
3: Yeah, better way of saying it, imperfect. Um, well, uh, first of all, I would encourage everyone to research uh, Cliff's uh, trivia question. I think that's an important uh, um, uh, foundation for the uh, students to really uh, understand what relative humidity is it, it's the relative humidity is also called by another name many people don't know this relative humidity is also called relative vapor pressure it is a fraction of the vapor pressure over a surface of a liquid so relative humidity is derived from vapor pressures and i think that that's an important foundation to for the student to understand, because advanced topics require that as a building block. Anyway, I just thought I'd give that.
0: All right. Well, uh, now that you gave that, um, <laughs> I, um, I, I want to challenge you on it, okay? oh Okay, well, I don't know that it's an uh-oh, because I think that you're going to have the answer. Okay, our industry has been known to focus myopically on one criterion on a psychrometric chart. Right, and we started with relative humidity, and for years that was all we talked about. Okay, right. and and then we've kind of gotten off relative humidity, and the current one I think is grain per pound. Okay, <laughs> and you're all, you're talking about a different one, which is vapor pressure. And right. why is your interest in vapor pressure holistic rather than myopic? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
3: Um. Well, here's the, the concern, and this is one of the uh, bits of feedback that I received from some of the readers of these articles. Uh, they will The readers will emphatically emphasize, well, that's the same word twice, they emphatically <laughs> state that the um, grains per pound metric is appropriate to use um, universally, since it is so closely related on a psychometric chart to the vapor pressure column. And while that is absolutely true, they do go up and down on the chart absolutely together. When we're talking about wet materials, it is not interchangeable. Um, the psychometric chart is not, does not use interchangeable phrases that you can apply to wet materials. Let me give you an example. Um, while the, in the air, if we raise the grains per pound, the vapor pressure also goes up. I don't think anybody would argue this. But when we heat a material, those that have done the research will will conclude that the vapor pressure within the material shall also rise. But does this mean that the grains per pound in the material also rises? This is a very interesting uh, phenomenon or a concept because what it implies is that if you heat up a material, the weight of the material becomes heavier, grains per pound. And it, the, the point I'm trying to make is that when we're talking about hygroscopic materials, grains per pound is an inappropriate metric to be referring to. So, therefore, if we're talking about a drying strategy, we have to talk apples to apples. Vapor pressure in the environment is appropriate, and vapor pressure in the materials. Is appropriate. Therefore, let's talk about vapor pressures. Let's not just assume that grains per pound is all we need to measure. We need to compare both the materials and the environment using a common metric that is appropriate for both, and that I feel would be vapor pressures.
0: That's a common denominator. I think that's one of the differences. Um, and I I was glad that I, you know I didn't know that you were going to answer the question that way, but I, I somehow thought that you would because. I'd never heard the term relative uh, vapor pressure before, uh, you know, is, is in terms of relative humidity. But, no, I think very, very good. You
1: mentioned another term, Ken, um, and I want to make sure that for listeners that aren't familiar with it, hygroscopic materials, hygroscopic materials. Right. Um, these, could you first define what hygroscopic materials are and then tell us a little bit about how they work in nature? Um, do, are they continuously hydrated, or are they uh, fluctuating?
3: Sure, of course. You know, a lot of people think that hygroscopic, uh, H-Y-G-R-O, um, they feel that sometimes that's a, a typo. It's not a typo. Uh, we are familiar with the term hydro, with a D as in David. Uh, that's a, you know, like a hydroelectric dam, Hydro refers to water in its liquid state. Hygro, with a G, refers to water in its vapor state. So uh, it is an intentional spelling, and it is distinctly different from a, um, uh, when we we're talking about water in its liquid state. So a hygroscopic material is a material that is affected or influenced by humidity. For instance, a piece of wood when we have a piece of wood that uh, becomes wet um, we know that it will swell and we've seen that you know even in like for instance uh, a door jam. If the door is made of wood and it's uh, put in a humid environment the door will swell and the door sometimes gets stuck inside the door jam. This is because it's influenced by the humidity in the environment. So a hygroscopic material will release or gain moisture dependent on the amount of moisture that's in the environment. Um, Now, uh, a lot of uh, restorers will uh, use that reasoning and they will implement a drying strategy in their their flooded structure uh, by introducing extremely uh, uh, dry air in an effort to release the moisture or pull the moisture, or have that moisture driven out of those uh, hygroscopic materials due to the vapor pressure, the high vapor pressure that would be in the wood material, to the low vapor pressure environment. Uh, Again, I believe that the mechanism I just described is correct, that it is about pressures going from the high vapor pressure material to the low vapor pressure environment, and it works. But is it about grains per pound, or is it about pressures? And I think this is a disconnect between uh, what our industry is currently teaching and the way our uh, the actual physics of moisture movement work. Thank you. Sorry for the long-winded discussion. No, no, that's, that's, that's what we need.
1: That's perfect. Now, we are coming up on halftime here, Ken. Can we put you on hold for just a moment? And we're of going course. to go to our halftime, and we'll be back with Ken for the second half. Do you want to do the sponsors? Man? Yeah, let's, before we uh, do the uh, IE Connections, what's news with Glenn Feldman? Of course, we have to thank the sponsors
0: we're delighted to have, as our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at Iqa.org Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ
1: industry subscriptions and advertising information available at. IEconnections.com.
0: DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions. Visit them at DRI EAZ.com. John Don Products, where restoration and
1: abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N dot com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
4: Over all of the group. i mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be
1: a leader of men. Good day, Glenn Fellman. How are you?
4: I'm doing great, Joe. How are you?
1: Excellent, thank you. Go, glad we could get you this week. I understand uh, there's quite a bit of interesting new stuff coming out all week.
4: It it has been a big week. You know, July is usually a slow month for news, but this is gonna be the week I think where people are going to uh, change their perspectives on indoor air quality, mold, and moisture. Uh, whereas in the past, you've always heard, well, there really isn't a lot a lot of scientific information that you can correlate health problems to uh, dampness or mold or indoor air quality. This is going to be the week you can point to and say, wait a minute, there is some good science out there. Let's start with a big development that happened on July 16th, last Friday. The World Health Organization released a document called WHO Guidelines for Indoor Air Quality, Dampness, and Mold. It is the first guideline on indoor air quality addressing dampness and mold to come out of the World Health Organization. The guidelines are the result of a rigorous two-year review of the currently available science by 36 leading experts worldwide, and it was coordinated by the WHO Regional Office for Europe. The authors conclude that occupants of damp or moldy buildings, both private and public, get this, have a 75% greater risk of respiratory symptoms and asthma. Now, I am quoting directly out of the the guide here. Residential dampness is associated with a 50% increase in current asthma and substantial increases in other respiratory health outcomes, suggesting that 21% of current asthma in the United States may be attributable to residential dampness and mold. Let me say that again. 21% 21% of current asthma in the United States may be attributable to residential dampness and mold. Wow. So your, your, your guest today has a, has a lot of important work ahead of him if he's going to prevent asthma in this country. Absolutely. This was an over uh, 200-page report, and listeners who'd like to get that should go to the WHO website. It's uh, who.int and then go into the little search window and search for the word mold, but add a u to it. M O U L D. That's right. Okay. We'll <laughs> find it. Thank All right. You. The second big story here on uh, on health. Um, this one came out of a out, out of out of NIH. Uh, a child's IQ can be affected by his mother's exposure to urban air pollutants, and you can draw quick correlations to indoor air pollutants as well. Basically, what we have here is a, story, uh, a report that's come out that says a mother's exposure to urban air pollutants known as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs, can adversely affect a child's intelligent quotient, or IQ. The study, funded by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, part of NIH, was also, uh, also funded by EPA and several private foundations, and it found that children exposed to high levels of PAHs had full-scale and verbal IQ, excuse me, IQ scores that were uh, between 4 and 5 points lower than those of less-exposed children. Wow. So if your mother's been exposed to uh, indoor air pollutants, specifically PAHs, uh, you, you lose about 5 points on your IQ scale. I don't know about you, but for me that would hurt.
1: Well, that's similar to lead, yeah. I mean, you know, with lead, lead poisoning is the same way. Well, yeah. the,
0: the scary thing is where you find a lot of PAHs, they're, they're fire-related. you got to have a lot of women... Fire restoration workers, you know, cleaning contents, cleaning inside of houses, you know, it might be a new risk factor. For Good them. point. Good point. One more. I thought about
4: that. I got uh, uh, one more, and then a quick one. Uh, this is a big one because this could affect uh, 1.2 million American households. Uh, the HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development, has put out a notice uh, strongly recommending and urging the that smoking be completely banned in public housing. Again, 1.2 million American households reside in, uh, in public housing. And uh, HUD wants all smoking out of these properties. This notice is coming out about a month after President Obama signed the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's a pretty strong one here. So this is going to affect a lot of people, and it's a good thing. Last I want to put out there real quick uh, the Indoor Air Quality Association launched a new chapter last uh, or this summer. It's a San Diego, California chapter. They're having their first workshop on August seventh. And if you're interested in that, go to iaqa.org and follow the link for chapters. You can get all the information.
1: Yeah, I saw that. Looks like a good one.
4: Yeah, it is a good one. All
1: right. Well, thank you, Glenn. You uh, can you join us for the roundup?
4: It'd uh, be my pleasure.
1: Great. We'll talk to you then. Okay. You. Let's get Dr. Dieter on the line. Hello, Dieter.
2: Oh. I guess I... Uh, can you hear me?
1: Yes, we can. We had to get your introductory music there. How are you today, sir?
2: Good old Ludwig van Beethoven is going to enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. I'm sorry. I got a little bit late. I was uh, hung up on a couple of things that had something to do with making money. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I can understand that, Dieter.
2: I think... I mean, I am not quite sure what... Uh, the point is that we are talking about, and um, I do seem to remember that there are seven thousand grains in a pound, which is a ridiculous measurement in the first place. But anyway, uh, I don't know how to measure grains per pound if I have a wet basement or a wet concrete slab. You know, I don't, I don't want to take that one out and then dry it and weigh it before and after, and I can determine grains. I don't know how to measure that in a two by four that is in a in a, in a structure, and the other thing is, I'm looking I'm looking at a um, psychometric chart put out by General Electric, and it's, this one is copyrighted 1942, and it hasn't changed fortunately. If it changes, we're in deep trouble, <laughs> and. Um, yeah uh, there are a ton of, is a ton of good information there it has served me well in my professional life for the last 50 year 49 years or something like that and i think there is still incredibly good information on there and there is a thing i mean i certainly do believe that uh, the vapor pressure goes from lower to higher that is that is that is normal and um uh, in, 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 in drying, I just talked to somebody, and they have a building that was wet, and they said, well, we lowered the temperature, and we have the air conditioning uh, on uh, to get rid of uh, the that the relative humidity is coming down. And I said, guys, the relative humidity is going up. But I said, there is water dripping out of the uh, uh, evaporator uh, drain, said, so we are taking moisture. said, like, yes, you are taking moisture, yeah. out, but it is the relative humidity, and if you lower the temperature, the relative humidity goes up. I don't give a damn how many grains, pounds, kilograms, milligrams, or grams are dripping out of there. So I think we got to be careful um, with that. I, uh, I I do agree that we. We, we should not take one measurement as the gold standard and never ever look at anything else. Good God, no, that that is not a good idea. But I think, uh, I still, I will not throw away my uh, psychometric chart, believe me, and I will be teaching it and hopefully some people will understand what it means and what it does not mean. And that is, I think, incredibly important. I think that,
1: That may be the point Ken's trying to get to here, dear. Let's uh, listen to the second half and bring you back for the roundup, and uh, we'll talk more. Sure. All right. Thank you. Hello, Ken. Uh, Ken, do we have you back on the line? Great. Okay. Excellent. I don't know if you got a chance to hear Dr. Wiles' comments or not. Did you want to add anything?
3: Well, sure I do. Um, And I think I might want to uh, move to Germany where the competition are employing those kinds of strategies. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he's here. He's here in the U.S., but <laughs> oh, exactly. okay. they're Very still good. doing it
1: here, too, unfortunately.
3: <laughs> I tell you, you know, that is a classic case of the type of misunderstanding that I'm observing restores um, demonstrating on these uh, critical water damage losses. I think it's important that they uh, understand what the, the purpose is in, uh, or even what their targets are when they're employing a drying strategy. And uh, I just, uh, I, this is absolutely what I'm seeing it, it, all over the country is people that have these theories that just are completely disconnected from uh, what it really takes to dry out a structure. Well, Ken, Dieter
1: touched on something that had me a little, it um, was a question I had anyway. You know, we're talking about uh, the vapor pressure. How do you measure this?
3: Yeah, that was a, a great comment uh, that uh, was just expressed, was how do you measure the vapor pressure in these materials? It's really not as difficult as some may think. Um, perhaps the, the one that is the most logical and easy to um, uh, visualize is, let's take, for example, the, the concrete slab imagine if i was to take a uh, a drill bit and i was going to drill oh maybe 2 or 3 inches into the concrete slab with a uh, oh, a half inch drill that would put a a hole in the slab through which i could insert uh the thermohygrometer's sensor the temperature and humidity meter's sensor and i'd put that down inside the slab seal off the edges let it reside there for a period of time and uh until the um, the environment in that little uh, hole will equalize in vapor pressures between the air in the hole and the vapor pressures in the slab. That will give me a relative humidity reading on my thermohygrometer. If I know that the temperature of the air and the temperature of the slab are exactly the same, I now know its degree of Uh, saturation. I can look at the relative humidity measurement, and I can calculate the vapor pressure in that slab, because the pressures of the moisture in the slab and the the moisture in the air shall equalize. And that gives me that metric that I can use in my uh, drying strategy. Now, if the air above the slab has a lesser vapor pressure, then I know that the moisture in the slab is seeking to equalize with the lesser vapor pressure, air above it. Okay,
0: okay. I've, okay. Got a, I've got a question for you, Ken, on that. Okay, how do you make this calculation? Do you just move the decimal point over two places to the left, or is there a mathematical uh, calculation that does it?
3: Yeah, I think what you're describing is something called water activity. Um, the water activity metric, as I understand it, Cliff, is a very important metric when evaluating the potential for mold growth. When you look at the specification, mold or bacteria, um, I've got to make that clear, both uh, anything microbial, they use water activity metrics in order to evaluate whether or not, it, or not there's enough moisture for it to um, colonize and propagate. Um, that's a water activity metric. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a drying strategy, okay. which is a vapor pressure metric. And that needs uh, a psychrometric chart uh, in order to uh, calculate that vapor pressure. Now, you know, uh, I, I forgot the, the previous gentleman's name. I'm so sorry. Uh,
0: uh, Dieter.
3: Dieter. I'm sorry, Dieter. Um, Dieter made a very interesting comment, and I absolutely support him in it, and that is that I'm not ready to give up my psychrometric chart yet. It's a critical part of my toolkit in order to understand what's Happening on the job, and I positively will continue to use it. But I'm going to use it the way um, science supports its use, which is really looking um, well at each metric and using each metric uh, responsibly. I just I can't uh, bring myself to just go. Well, I'm going to use this one uh, metric today, like vapor pressure, and tomorrow I'll use grains per pound because they're exactly the same. They'll go up and down the chart together. No. Each metric has a purpose. And uh, anyway, that's just my position.
0: Well, let me go back to what you were commenting on. Like, you know, when you take this uh, sensor and you place it into the concrete and everything equalizes and and so on and so forth, and you take this reading on the, uh, you know, on the hygrometer, which some people, you know, would refer to as, um, I'm trying to think, what did you call it? uh, water activity. Sure. How does that? Um, th- th- you know, w- when you, when you do this calculation, you, you then you take that reading and then go to the chart and determine the vapor pressure.
3: That's correct. Okay. As All long right. as the temperature of the air in that hole in the slab and the temperature of the material are identical. Right. You can calculate the vapor pressure within the material. Now, I just want to make sure everybody understands that, you know, this is an approved ASTM test. Right. And I'm trying to remember. I think it's the 1180, the ASTM 1180, I think. I'm, I have to verify that. But it um, is a, uh, a, a recognized test that I believe would hold up in court. And uh, it's conclusive, and it's of enormous value in answering the following question is my drawing strategy working on the wet material? And I really think that that's the ultimate question that most people, you know, adjusters, homeowners, even the restorer themselves, they're asking themselves that question. Is my drawing strategy working, and can I prove it? And that's the, one of the tests that can assist you in conclusively answering that question.
0: Okay, back to back to the back to this back to this number that you know in the psychrometric chart. If I'm not mistaken, and please correct me because you know way more about this uh, than I do. I thought in order to use the psychrometric chart, you needed two points of reference in order yeah. to find the you know the the missing one. Yeah. So do you still need two points of reference? Are we trying to find something missing, or do you just take this reading that you have and go to the chart and you have what you need so you can do it with two points or do you need three points i guess is what i'm
3: wow Uh, okay um great question now if we're trying to answer the question the full question is my restore restoration drying strategy effective on the materials that i am drying there are in my opinion five points of reference that are required on each inspection site and here's what they are I, first of all, need to understand the vapor pressure in the environment. I need to know the temperature and relative humidity of the environment. From that, I can calculate the vapor pressure in the environment. The next thing I need to know is the vapor pressure in the material. So what two points of, uh, of data do I need for that? Well, using the testing me- uh, method that I just described, where you drill a hole in the concrete slab, I can plot the temperature of the slab, and the the relative humidity within the slab, the equilibrium relative humidity is what that's called. That's when the vapor pressure in the material and the vapor pressure in that small hole are equal. That's the equilibrium relative humidity. I can take those two data points and plot it on the chart and calculate my vapor pressure. I then calculate the difference between the vapor pressure in the environment and the vapor pressure in the material. That is my drying force. It is the force with which the moisture is seeking to escape from the slab, or it's being absorbed into the slab, which would, whatever those readings show. And, and, and the thing about that is that vapor pressures can be even converted into metrics that we understand, like pounds per square inch. And we can calculate the force with which the moisture is seeking to escape per square inch. It's a very interesting metric. And finally, the fifth element that we need to uh, be documenting for a conclusive uh, uh, statement about our drying uh, process would be the wind speed over the surface of that material. It's, it's, the wind speed is an important metric that is sp- spoken of in most scientific documents. It's, you've got to know how, much, how quickly that moisture um, or the, the, uh, the moisture is being swept away from the surface of the material in order to define the rate of drying. So here you have five um, data points that I think are responsible for the restorers to be using on every job. And I think that currently we might be collecting two, maybe three of those data points as standard documentation. I would like to see us take five.
1: Okay, we've got a couple text questions here. I'm going to try and get to one uh, that I think, let's see. How does the absolute humidity come into this?
3: Oh, my. Well, here's the way I'd answer this. Um, First of all, I think it's really important that we establish the true definition of absolute humidity. Um, Some of the standards... Or, or, you know, the definitions that I've seen published in the standard about absolute humidity and uh, even other forces uh, have a, a definition that I believe um, deserves a revisit. Absolute humidity, as, as I understand it, is the weight of the water vapor per cubic meter of air. So now you're, you're measuring the weight of the liquid in a specific, unchanging volume of air, regardless of temperature, it's always a cubic meter. And the problem with this is that if you have a cold exterior and a warm interior, an absolute humidity metric doesn't speak to each other because we're always talking about a cubic meter of air. And, and you know, as we all learned in grade school, when you heat up air, it expands. So therefore, it's not weight to weight which is apples and apples, it's apples and oranges. And so it's not a metric that we would normally use in the restorative drying industry. Uh, The better uh, metric to be used would be something called humidity ratio or humidity mixing ratio. Notice I didn't say specific humidity. We don't use specific humidities in our industry. Our charts do not show specific humidity in the grains per pound column. If you read it, it says humidity ratio grains of moisture per pound of dry air. Specific humidity is grains of moisture per pound of wet air. In other words, the weight of the moisture is included in the sample uh, of air that's being tested. So it's, again, it's a messed up, mixed up metric. You've got to have a consistent denominator, like grains per pound of dry air. The pound of dry air is always a pound of dry air, regardless of how much moisture might be present. So, anyways, I just another little soapbox of mine. Sorry that's, about that. That's
1: all right, Ken. Now, one other quick one, um, and I, I don't think you would disagree. You, in your previous discussion, one of the listeners said you are still having to calculate the humidity ratio to determine the vapor pressure.
3: Uh, or, okay, we have to be specific here. We're only talking about environments, and the answer is yes. When we're talking about environments, uh, we can calculate grains per pound in the environment and correlate that to vapor pressure. It's, it goes up and down on the chart just like that. So I'm, I'm okay with that. But when we're talking about comparing the influence of the environment on the wet material, you must evaluate the material. Now, can you use a grains per pound metric when talking about the material. I believe that that is an an incorrect use of the grains per pound metric. Grains per pound was never intended for use in hygroscopic materials. Um, It's the same with dew point. Even though it's related to grains per pound, can't we just talk about dew point uh, temperatures and the evaluation of a material? It's an inappropriate metric. We have to use a metric that works on both the environment and the material and that would be vapor pressures. Okay, Annie.
4: Yeah, I got a different question. Can you opine on boilerplate equipment recommendations?
3: Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, um, you know these equipment recommendations that we see floating around the industry, and there's a, there's a more than one. They basically state that you know once you know once you classify the loss, which is basically evaluate the rate of evaporation that's going to happen in the environment, and you know what kind of dehumidifier you're going to use, and you know how large your drying chamber is, then you would follow this formula, and it would make an initial uh, equipment recommendation on that job. Now, that's fine. Uh, I I don't have a problem uh, with uh, these. Uh, you know formulas. Uh, you know, do I have an opinion on on uh, the way that they're used? Uh, sure. You know, I I don't um, uh, I don't really care uh, how much equipment a person installs on day one on the job. I don't um, really care which formula they use. I think, and I mentioned this earlier, the real question that I believe all the consumers and adjusters and even the restorers themselves are asking, and they need to know, is what is the uh, quantity of the drawing forces that are being uh, created with the use of this equipment? And are these tools that we installed actually necessary and providing value? All right, there's the real question. Now, do these boilerplate equipment recommendations answer that question? Absolutely not. It it, it is only a formula that will guide the, the restorer to install something like um, uh, something that would be effective in starting the job. But after the job has started, you have to go back to the job and evaluate whether that, that strategy is in fact having the intended result on your wet material um, and design it that way. Now, that's, that's where our industry is currently using that formula. Do so I think it needs to be revisited? You betcha I do. I think that the, uh, uh, the equipment formulas that are currently out there are you know, guesses. It's, it's what I called in the Crackery article a multivitamin. It's just it's not going to hurt anything. Try it out. It might start the job. Now go back to the job and see how much progress you made. I, I just think that that's a, a very loose way of creating a drawing strategy. I think we need more than
0: that. I'm going to give you my opinion before I ask you for yours. Okay. Uh, in ICRC S 500 section 12.1.20, uh, it says that restorers should install one air mover for each 10 to 16 linear feet of wall with the outlet of each air mover pointing in the same direction. With the air mover almost touching the wall, restorers should aim its outlet at the wall at a 15 to 45 degree angle, depending on the air moving device used, whether it's centrifugal or axial. In addition, restorers should consider installing at least one air mover for each small bathroom closet or other offset or inset. You know, I know that I did not do that in 1978. Okay, I don't know that you did it in 1978 either. No, nope. uh, I can tell you that I've dried thousands of buildings without doing that, and I've never done that. <laughs> and and I, I, I guess I, I just, I, you know, I don't know. I, I guess my opinion is: Do you agree with that recommendation, or, or do you agree that that should be the industry standard?
3: Oh man. Well, I, I, I guess what I would like to say to that, Cliff, is I'd like to know where that. I'd like to see that study. And I'd like to see where the the scientific support is for that mathematical formula. Uh, I've never seen any evidence uh, that shows that this is a uh, responsible strategy um, on all losses, on all category, sorry, class two or class three losses. I just, I don't see the math on it. Um, I I think it's based on empirical data. And while that might have value for uh, an industry back in nineteen seventy eight because that's really what we all worked with with empirical data. Um, I think in today's day and age, and with the maturity of our industry, we deserve much more um, solid uh, formulas, and um, I think we should invest in the research necessary to define uh, the air mover needs necessary on a a water damage loss. And it should be based on something a little bit more uh, sophisticated than just how many linear feet of wall you have in the room or the square feet of the chamber. I just, uh, it sits wrong with me. Okay.
1: Ken, we've got, uh, we're running low on time. We're going to go to the roundup. Guest five, I, I have your question here. I will get that on the round, uh, as a part of the roundup. Chris? Move them
4: on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw.
1: All right. Let's bring it back around the horn here. Um, I want to go back to a question that was texted in here. Um, Let's see. There we go. You mentioned drilling into the concrete floor to monitor your vapor pressure. What procedure do you recommend on hardwood, uh, plaster, and other materials?
3: Well, that's a a great question. Um, And of course, it's going to be more difficult because that's a finished product. It's something that the would be cosmetically compromised if you started drilling holes into the material. Um, You know, a hardwood floor is going to be um, uh, uh, difficult because it has that finish on the top side that you can't uh, get that equilibrium vapor pressure uh, through uh, efficiently. Um, There are ways of taking your quantified moisture content in the material... Uh, through a, uh, an invasive-type pin-type wood meter and used responsibly according to the manufacturer's directions on you know, correcting for the temperature of the wood and correcting the reading for the species of the wood, you can derive a, a moisture content uh, uh, conclusion that would be somewhat close to what the actual moisture content is in that material by weight. Um, I would then go to the EMC chart and with the temperature of the material and the EMC chart, I can derive the equilibrium relative humidity at that inspection site in the wood. And with that, I can do, go to my chart, and I can take the temperature of the wood, ERH of the wood, put it into the EMC chart, uh, calculate the, uh, um, the vapor pressure with my psychrometric chart, and there's my way of doing that. Now, of course, the same would uh, be true with... Um, actually it's different. With the uh, uh, lath and plaster, I have to have a smooth finish on the wall, I can't have a coat of you know high gloss paint on it because I won't get the transfer of the vapor pressure through the material. So it has to be an unfinished area of the lath and plaster, take the thermohygrometer, place it on the wall, tape it or something, cover it in a sheet of plastic that you can see through, tape and seal the edge of that plastic perfectly, let it equalize on that wall, take a temperature and humidity reading, uh, under that plastic, make absolutely sure that this is not sitting in the line of sight of a, of a sunbeam where the material shall become hotter than the air in, inside it. You've got to make sure that it's a shaded area, and then you can get your temperature and humidity in there. Again, go to your psychometric chart, calculate the vapor pressure. I, I think, you know, there's all these different methods. I think that there should be a class on this. There's, this should be part of our curriculum. How do you test materials to render conclusive Values that you can use in the analysis of your drawing strategy. This is a, a need for our industry.
1: Well, I guess I got to follow up then. The, um, students naturally place trust and faith in, in training and, and in certification organizations to teach. Um, sure. Do you feel that some of these educational organizations have gotten the science and then the followed up recommendations wrong? <laughs>
3: Well, that'll sure put a red bullseye on my (laughs) T-shirt. Wow. Uh, Listen, I I think it's an important question. I I think that the articles that I've published have identified where respected authorities and and scientific sources may conflict with what many restorers currently understand to be truthful and accurate. So the question is, where did the restorer learn this information, And, and why do they trust it? I think some would say that they, um, they received their, their understanding from the people who gave them their certificate. And personally, I, I would love to see a, a complete rebuild of our industry's current water damage standard from the ground up. Uh, I mean the very foundation of how we approach a water damage project, one where the approach places a heavy focus on the needs of the structure rather than an evaluation of just the environment, um, You know, one where the needs of the structure dictate the tools you need to address the job. Uh, I've stepped up and volunteered for that effort uh, in the past, but it appears our industry isn't quite ready for that development. Uh, I was only told that uh, a rewrite was a possibility, and in fact, they are doing a rewrite of the S-500 right now. Um, uh, Sorry, a revision. Uh, A rewrite is not a possibility, but a revision of the standard is what they're doing right now. All right,
1: fair enough, Ken. Let's go over to Annie. Annie.
4: Yeah, Ken. What is your opinion of creating a drying chamber by sealing off the affected area versus opening the affected area op- up to adjacent areas?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I, I see this as one of the questions facing the restorer as he develops his drying strategy. Uh, if he has the appropriate drying tools for his chamber, then great, seal off the area. But if you don't have the correct tools to do the uh, to apply the physics necessary to make that water change state from a liquid to a gas. Um, then you don't have much choice. Uh, you has to dilute that evaporated moisture into the adjacent areas so that he will avoid secondary damages in the wet area itself. Uh, it, I really think that that strategy is going to be a much slower strategy uh, than if you had the correct tools to do the job um, and, and implemented those tools uh, uh, responsibly. Alright,
1: let's go to um, Glenn Fellman. Glenn, uh, you got a round-up question?
4: I do. I do. It's a follow-up to, to what we were just talking about. Uh, you know, if you look around the landscape for, for training uh, for water damage restoration, you've got the IICRC WRT course. I think that's the three days, including the test-taking time. Uh, RIA has the CR program, which has a lot of prerequisites, but again, also, a, a, a I think, about a week-long course. Uh, None of that really seems adequate based on the complexity of the issues we're talking about today as well as the advancing science. So my question for our guest is where does a person who wants to learn how to do it right go to learn? Oh, oh man.
3: Um well I, I guess you're looking for an it's almost an endorsement. I I don't have one to give. Uh, you know, I, again, I've I've listed off five articles that I've re- written in the last 2 years where i've asked a ton of questions all kinds of questions what um... you know what does what does the current industry's understanding of our definitions mean for the restore what does what are the implications if we've got the science wrong i asked a lot of questions you know what has been the result of that well as i mentioned earlier awareness and where does that awareness go it goes straight to the people that produce these uh... standards and certification programs Uh, are they feeling uncomfortable uh, I believe they are, and I've I've seen that discomfort, and been asked to attend meetings and discuss it further. And you can you can feel their discomfort with the the fact that well maybe these are questions we can't answer, so maybe we've got to do some more research. And the problem with that is that if there's change required, change is expensive. You know, change requires new curriculums, it requires new exams, uh, it, it requires. Um, uh, you know, new tools, maybe, uh, new meters, new documentation, and in some cases, even new employees, because they don't, if they don't uh, uh, embrace a new understanding or a new approach to a drying job, they need to be replaced. Change is expensive. And so I think that's what where the resistance is in our industry right now to um, just saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got to just make this change and go forward. No, it, it, there's costs associated with it, and I think that that's... Um, where our industry is, is kind of struggling right now. Is it really important that we make this change? I think that's still, that question is still on the table, and people are, are scratching their head. How do we change, and should we? we?
1: We certainly appreciate you giving it a try here. Anyway, Ken, I've got two more. I want to talk to uh, Dr. Dieter real quick, and then uh, we're going to let the Z-Man finish up here since he was the one that uh, had this great idea for this show. Dieter? Yeah,
2: well, uh, you know, I, I I know places where you can learn about vapor pressures and temperatures and all of that. Uh, I took a course like this 40 years ago. It was called thermodynamics, and I don't know whether we want to put somebody through that exercise. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> I would love to do that, and yeah, that's 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 one of those things in the steam tables. And Joe has one of my steam tables. I had two of them. I do. You find every vapor pressure <laughs> at any temperature of moisture you want up to superheated vapor, but it doesn't matter. And I, yeah, sometimes I, and, and, and Joe and I had uh, that discussion. When we are teaching together, and I don't know, Ken, whether you know that uh, Joe and I, we are doing things. Now, I know... I know quite a little bit about toxicology and, for instance, filtration, and certainly about the um, um, uh, uh, psychometric charge, which I learned 40 years ago in a thermodynamics class. And I sit there with Joe and I said, You know, Joe, these people, uh, uh, some of them were not equipped to understand, and I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that. And I said, you know, Joe, maybe I'm too detailed. I know too much, and maybe these people don't need it. Now, I understand Ken's question over here. And I said, you know, if you have a 2,000-square-foot house and it's wet, uh, then here is the equipment calculation, which is really a table. You need 3D humidifiers and and ventilate. uh, God forbid, uh, at six air changes an hour or something like that. And perhaps even measure the relative humidity and temperature yeah, outside and inside, and if you then make the decision that if you take outside air in with the right wind speed, which my grandmother knew, she told me that that the towel dries faster when there is more wind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, that, that is the question uh, to me. Does uh, yeah, is a, does Dale Earnhardt? Uh, his car is computer-driven. I don't think he knows how that computer works, and apparently it works for him nicely. And uh, would that be helpful if he knows? Absolutely. I agree with this. Should we put him into a computer class and does it make him a better uh, race driver? I don't know. Uh, Maybe it does a little bit. Maybe he appreciates a little bit more. But what's the output? How do we measure it? Is it really better? But yeah, I I I do understand what Ken is uh, uh, saying that there is a heck of a lot of misinformation out there, and I hear about it all the time. And I said, hey, maybe we gotta do that. But do we give graduate courses? Uh, I don't know.
1: Good question, Dater. Ken will have to.
2: what I'd like to say to that is, um, Duder, if
3: I could, is that I, I agree with you. I think that a lot of this information is over the heads of the average technician. Uh, absolutely it is. And the question is, what's the solution? Well, you know, we have these mathematical formulas available to us. For, it's a very simple research. And we have some very smart people in our industry. And the world currently has computers. And they're, they're very small and very compact. I think that if this... Uh, As part of the solution, it would be a computerized solution that crunches extremely complicated mathematical formulas and produces some recommendations based on uh, the math that we know is necessary uh, to produce a responsible drying strategy. Now, what does that look like? Uh, Well, I don't know. My crystal ball is kind of fuzzy on that one. But I do believe that that solution is coming. It has to come because our industry is stepping up and saying we need more. And um, I would hope that uh, our industry is going to evolve
1: that way. All right, we're going to go to Cliff in a moment. I just have to mention a, a little text here. It says, uh, "Doctor, if you volunteer for Newton's law part, I'll cover the psychometrics, and the speaker appears to have the finished drying material uh, material drying covered well. so well,
0: I think one, <laughs> one of the, the other I think again. one of the other other comments that we had is uh, from one of the other listeners is. Is this discussion something that Purdue is considering? And actually, Purdue University is getting involved with disaster restoration and has done some funding. Actually, our company you know, is one of the benefactors and uh, you know, th- that was supporting it. Because I think we do want to get uh, to the answers. Um, I guess my question really goes to um, this in-place drying versus uh, flotation. Uh, drawing and you know, uh, is your opinion uh, that in-place drawing is given um, enough time in, in training courses? Uh, is given not enough time, or is given too much time?
3: Well, good question, and I I think that um, at least the courses that I've attended, Cliff. Uh, in-place drying seems to be the dominant strategy that's being taught. It's being taught as this is the way you want to do it um, uh, for the most part because most of the the training is actually spent teaching an in-place drying system. But, you know, as part of that presentation, the instructor will typically say, look, you can only do in-place drying if the water intrusion came from a sanitary source it hasn't been sitting there so long that it, you know, it's biodegraded into, you know, something moldy or, you know, changed category because it's been sitting there so long. Um, drying the carpet in place won't cause damage to a hardwood floor below that carpet. And you have adequate dehumidification available for use on that location. Okay, you've got to use the right kind of dehumidifiers. And you have deep extraction tools available. Now, if you don't have all of those elements in place, An in-place drawing strategy is inappropriate. Therefore, you'd have to either start uh, removing some of the materials or floating or whatever else your other options are. Now, my, my polls with students indicate that less than half of the jobs that they go out on meet all these criteria. But it's the most dominant style of drawing that's being taught in many of the courses that I've gone to. So the study I would like to see evaluated is, how effectively these physics, that transfer of energy for, with our drying tools, how effectively are those energies being delivered to the wet materials in an in-place drying process? You know, I just can't help but feel that these multiple layers of textiles and finishes over the wet materials result in a diminished drying force. But, you know, that's just my speculation. I, I'd like to see more studies on that.
1: Fair enough, Ken. Well, thank you. We really uh, appreciate you staying over, number one. It was a fascinating discussion. We had a lot of people on the line. They seemed to stay for the whole show. So I want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope we can bring you back again.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime.
1: Before we do go, though, um, we always like to give the uh, the, uh, guest the last word. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to add, and can you give our listeners uh, some contact information if they want to follow up with you directly?
3: Um, sure. Yeah, you know, there, there is something that I wanted to um, uh, say just quickly about that uh, restorative drawing quackery article. Um, you know, uh, just hang on a second here. I made a few notes here, and I just wanted to uh, quickly uh, mention a couple of things here. Um, you know, I, I was very um, surprised by the polarized responses that i received from some of our readers as i mentioned earlier some people were happy about it other people were confused other people were you know really insulted and i guess the the reason why they were insulted was because of my use of the word quack Uh, clearly that's a hot button with some people and i'm actually okay with that because i didn't call anybody a quack what i was doing was just saying don't fall into the trap of of not being able to answer your questions uh, on how things dry. You know, one person said that, you know, just because I can't fully explain why or how my process works doesn't make me a quack. And I thought that's such an interesting comment, and I'm going to leave that for the listeners to decide. You know, but I think he just told me how our industry's training programs are doing their job. He still doesn't understand how or why his drying happens. And I think that tells me volumes, and everybody volumes, about how well we're doing as an education um, group in the delivery of these courses. Now, even if I'm absolutely incorrect in my understandings or the expressions that I made in the article or even on this radio show, I I am pleased about one thing. These articles prompt people to think. You know, it it prompts them to reconsider what they believe to be true. To think outside their box of beliefs, just like I did 20 years ago, and finally, you know, to consider the consequences to their career reputation and even the re- industry's reputation if our understandings are in fact c- incorrect. Um, you know, I even had some emails where some people said, you know, what what uh, style of drying are you promoting? Are you promoting dehumidifying? Are you promoting heat drying? Where are you coming from? Uh, you know, clearly, these articles that I've written are not about the, uh, the tools that we have available to us. It's about our strategy, our protocol, you know, our performance claims. The, you know, I'll give the example, three-day drying. We'll dry it all in three days. Oh, drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, and um, documentation. You know, would, would we say that our drying restoration strategy is nothing more than what that doctor did when he gave his patient that boilerplate prescription of a multivitamin for a complicated medical condition? You know, do you think that this is a common problem for our industry? Um, I'm, I'm here to say, I think there is a problem, and that's why I wrote these articles. And you know, the, these articles usually conclude with the um, encouragement for all that, out there who feel that there's an issue to inform their certification groups of their concerns. And that shouldn't be offensive to anyone. That's, a, that's what we should do. Tell our, these organizations where they may have got the science wrong and you know, to make improvements. Now, if the certification group has all their ducks in a row, then the Quackery article is nothing more than you know, me blathering on about nothing. But on the other hand, if the certification groups struggle to defend their curriculum and their theory, then that will hopefully motivate change, and I want to be part of that change. And I encourage everybody out there who feels that way to step up, show the science to these organizations, and have them either respond to it or correct it. I think our industry deserves that, and so do our consumers. All right. Cliff? Well,
1: uh, get his contact information. First. All right. First, let's get first, the contact information. Real
3: quickly, my, st- my uh, direct line to my office is area code 630. 630- 741-7284. That's my office. If you would like to send me an email, I'm, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, my uh, email address is K, as in Ken, Larson, L-A-R-S-E-N, not F O N, at... Does that, uh, go D-K-I-Services.com. D-K-I-Services.com.
0: D-K-I... All right. Cliff, uh, Can I just... Really want to compliment you on really the way that you've conducted yourself in in your business career. We've known each other for a long time, and you've always approached approached these tough issues with class and, and with grace. And, you know, you haven't been argumentative, and I think you've challenged conventional thought. And, you know, you've tried to write things that you've seen were wrong, and you've tried to correct information uh, you know, which is, is misinformation, and I certainly appreciate it, and I think the industry appreciates it as well.
3: Well, wow, thank you for the kind words.
1: All right. Well, thanks to this week's guest, Ken Larson, for joining us. Next week, we're going to have uh, Steve Toburen back uh, by special demand on strategies for success. Uh, we're going to have an update from Andy Robinson on heat drying, and uh, we're looking forward to that. I'll be on the road, but the Z Man will ably handle the, uh, the the festivities here. Before I go, I want to make sure I thank uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. it's a pleasure, Chum. Environmental Annie for joining us here again today. Thank uh, you, Jeff. The Wingman, Chris Boisell at the controls. Glenn Fellman from the IE Connections What's news segment and also helping us out with the roundup. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of... IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.